The world is evolving at a faster pace than ever before, and as we begin the path to recovery after worldwide disruption, this podcast explores how the design industries can adapt to changing expectations and create a better future for both your businesses and your consumers. I'm Bethan Ryder, Executive Editorial Director here at WGSN, and I'm your host this week. You're listening to Create Tomorrow, the WGSN podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Create Tomorrow podcast, in which we'll be discussing the future of social robots. Here at WGSN, we've been tracking the growth of robotics, a global market that, according to consultancy firm Frost & Sullivan, will reach $38.3 billion by 2024. What's more, the global adoption rate of robotics and automation in digital supply chains is set to increase from 39% in 2020 to 73% in 2025. And Gartner predicts that by 2025, at least two out of the top 10 global retailers will form robot resource organisations to manage non-human workers. During the pandemic, robots moved from manufacturing lines to service roles. In China, the need for touch-free services has given the unmanned economy a significant boost and sales of robots are growing at more than twice the rate of global trajectories. Previously mute and brute, robots now have roles worldwide as restaurant servers, hotel clerks and even therapists. What's more, consumer trust in robots overall is growing as they become mainstream. A global study in 2020 by Oracle and HR firm Workplace Intelligence found that 82% of people believe robots can support their mental health better than humans. So it's a new robotic world. To discuss these topics, I'm really excited to welcome Carla Diana, US designer, author and educator who's just published a fantastic handbook to anyone engaged in consumer tech design. It's called My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human and it's published by Harvard Business Review Press. Hi, Carla. Welcome to the podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hello, Bethan. Thanks for having me. I am calling in from Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, on the campus of the Cranbrook Academy of Art. And we are just outside Detroit. And to discuss this from a WGSN perspective, we have our head of the brand new consumer tech platform, Sarah Housley. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Bethan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited about this um, book, Carla, which I've read about half of, and I think Sarah has. I haven't quite finished it, but um, I just wanted to hear a little bit briefly for our for our audience, really, about your background because I know you've designed, you've also taught, and sort of why you why this book is a culmination, if you like, of your career. So my original degree in undergraduate was in mechanical engineering, mostly just because I knew I wanted to make things and I didn't know that industrial design and product design existed. And then, um, you know, as I worked as an engineer, I realized that there was so much work involved in thinking about the human and emotional side of what we create that I went back to school to get a master's in product design. And during that time, had this light bulb moment when I realized that physical things and digital things were going to come together. So I've pretty much focused my career on being a designer that focuses on physical things that have some kind of electronic components. What's exciting to me about the book is, is that you kind of, people are so sort of put off by the robotic idea but in a way you're humanizing robotics and I know that Sarah we've been tracking 
this at WGSN, right, that there's there's this huge growth and it's going to get even more over the next five years. It's sort of been accelerated. You've written about friendly tech a bit. What have you been seeing um, from our perspective? Yeah, so on the consumer-facing side, we've been talking a lot at WGSN about moving from high-tech to shy-tech, so much softer, more discreet, friendly-looking design for the robot-like products that exist within the home now, like um, uh, the Google Nest and all of Amazon's Alexa products. Brands are doing this really purposefully to to make them fit into the home more comfortably and to start to make consumers more comfortable with this abstract idea of living with robots. And I think that design direction is really important for building that trust that we talked about. Consumer trust in robots is growing but they're also becoming more useful to our everyday lives. So we see a lot of drivers that are making them more important uh, to consumers at the moment. I think what's um, what I like about the book, um, Carla, is the way you've, you've broken it down into these sort of five pillars, presence, expression, interaction, context and ecosystem. So with the presence, that's very much what a product looks like, right? So I just wondered if you felt, Carly, obviously your area is tech, but clearly presence is something that, extends to every product right it's not just tech really can you talk a little bit about how you define presence in the context of your book presence it's really a lot of the in a, in a sense the poetics of product design you know people are used to thinking about colors in terms of uh, emotional cues but every aspect of design has that from the form that it is to the materials and something can look aggressive or it can look humble or you know it can look authoritative and I would even go so far as to saying that I think it would be wise for brands to actually you know just like we do um, typographic or or logo guidelines to even do kind of a, a form guideline I mean it's funny that you mentioned oh not only tech I actually feel like in some ways tech is the most challenge in this area because electronics have become so miniaturized that we can have something with so much capability that's just in some kind, like almost even invisibly hidden in our walls. And even though that's possible, sometimes that's actually a disservice because the product itself doesn't have um, a role in our physical lives in a way that it might need to i think there's an interesting example i think it's in this section in the book where you talk about uh, as sarah just touched on this kind of softening of tech which has been happening and if i think about like nest as a brand like there's very much that those forms come through for that brand and you talk about the home camera and how um they removed if you could talk a little bit about that because yeah, i love the yeah, way yeah, that yeah. in a way that went from an authoritarian looking object to a friendly one yeah, so I there's there one of the things I enjoyed about the process of the book is that I do have interviews with several designers and other professionals working on these types of products and one of those people was Rocky Jacob who had been the head of design for Nest and he described working on an outdoor camera and Typically, we'd only seen outdoor cameras as security cameras, but Nest was envisioning this as a home camera. You know, maybe it's 
to help you see if a package has landed on your doorstep, or it can become part of your doorbell for when your friend is there to visit and not necessarily out of this kind of like fear of needing it for some kind of crime. And this is, a, I also I really love the story because it, it sort of describes the back and forth between team members in a product design process. And he says when, you know, the first designs were sketched, they looked just like every other security camera. And what he felt like was a defining feature was the shield that goes over the lens, which obviously has very practical uses. But from a presence or form semantics point of view, he felt that that made it look like a police hat. And so he really worked hard with the all the whole team to see if they could eliminate that hat and soften the look and and make the lens just more prominent rather than sort of hidden under this shield and you know even though that that might just seem like a small detail it actually really defines the character of the product what other things have you been noticing sarah in in this space of the kind of the form if you like and the direction that um robotics are, are going towards as well I think there's something really interesting in in the shapes that are being used. So Carla speaks in her book about how we perceive shape and the movement of shapes. And Bethan and I both really love the flower sack experiment, Carla, where you get your design students to to animate how a flower sack might stand. It might soften its corners if it's embarrassed. It might kind of huddle if it's feeling shy. So those round shapes are kind of universally seen as really unthreatening. And they're also kind of cartoon character and I know that some of the robotics companies they they assemble really cross-disciplinary teams they have psychologists they have designers but they also have things like children's book illustrators who are really good at drawing friendly characters and they have um, animators from companies like Pixar and um, Jim Henson who who are really good at designing characters so I think that the design language is so rich within robotics which I think is so interesting. I'd love to move on now to expression because I feel like that's where this starts being dynamic. And um, you have you have three modalities, right, Carla, that you sketch out in your book. So the book has, and what I love that you're referring to, are the, the pillars and the way that they're illustrated in the book. It's almost like an onion with concentric circles that build where presence is actually at the core. And every, you know, every product, even even the water bottle I'm looking at has has presence. And then, you know, beyond that, the next level up would be expression. And what I talk about are light, sound and movement. And, you know, we think about movement around motors and the way things are um, physically animated and sound of course we've already talked about Siri and Alexa but I think abstraction comes into all of those and then light you know and then light can be something as like I'm looking at an LED one single point of light that's on my microphone but that when you start building lights you can either have a strip of lights that then starts to tell you the um strength of power or the direction of something up to where you once you start having a matrix you get almost to a screen. But, you know, I'm, I'm very interested and I work very hard with my students into not necessarily throwing screens onto every product and seeing how we can use those other modalities to give us the needed messages without having to be completely literal about them. 
And have you noticed, and I don't know if this is maybe one for Sarah, um, that as we've all become more tech savvy and people, and certainly over the uh, pandemic, people had to get to know what Zoom was and all these other aspects of tech in our lives, have those um, hints of what a, what a device is doing become more sophisticated too? Can you actually do it with very small um, things? And have you noticed that it's become more discreet, Sarah, in, in the kind of friendly tech well, there have been a number of advances from all of the home assistants over the past year. I'm not sure it's directly related to the pandemic. I'm sure it was planned in their product roadmaps a long time ago, but they've all become much more subtle in their cues. So some of them now turn to face you so that they can keep tracking you as you talk, which is something a human or an animal or any kind of life form would do naturally. So that feels very intuitive to us. Some of them, if you're, if they know you're looking at the screen, if they can sense that you have your eyes on the screen, they'll zoom in on what the text is on the screen. So all of these user experience things are meant to feel more natural and meant to feel more like you're interacting with something that is intelligent, that has this ambient intelligence to it. And those are definitely making the interactions um, feel more comfortable, I think. I love that bit in this section of the book where you talk about the magic moments that you're, I mean, it's the title of the book, right? Your robot, my robot gets me and that sense that you're communicating with that robot and um, how your son was sort of pre-verbal, but he could tell that the light that you'd put in his room, the LEDs, you could tell it was communicating something yeah. about um, time to wake up. Right, right. Yeah. I was using a product called Nanoleaf that are these series of tiles. They're, they're really exquisite. Um, and they just kind of glow, and you can program them to glow different colors or to have colors that, that move along it. And, I had, and I, he was in a room that didn't get great natural light, so I had put those in there. And yeah, it was this kind of, you know, great moment that I had explained to him. I mean, he wasn't even one, I think, that um, when it's orange, that's time to wake up. And if it's not orange yet, I would say we still have to stay asleep. It was wonderful because once we had this sh shared language, I would be able to go in his room in the morning when he had woken up and he would kind of raise his hands and point at the light and say it's time to get up you know and yeah it was this really lovely moment sarah and i were talking about um voice and sound and I'm sort of fascinated by the fact that um, some of these uh, devices that serve us have had female voices. Um, and I just wondered what you think about gender inclusivity and in robots going forwards and, and how, you know, the male voice typically associated with authority. Uh, how do we think this is going to be challenged in the future or how can we challenge it? Oh, yeah, this is a really rich discussion, and it's something that I think about a lot. So one of the main projects that I talk about in the book is uh, Moxie. That's a, a hospital robot for a company called Diligent Robotics. And we've been designing this robot that assists nurses. And, you know, Moxie, I think originally I and the team had been feeling like, there's a preponderance of women in the nursing field, and therefore it makes sense that 
Moxie would be female, but then we were always challenging that with feeling like, well, but we don't want to reinforce a bias, right? There are wonderful male nurses. So don't we want to contribute to that kind of inclusion? And then in addition to that, there is that other layer of, yeah, the robots are, are serving us. Like my um, colleague at Cornell Tech, Dr. Wendy Ju, she likes to say, you know, we're always having this philosophical conversation, what is a robot, you know, and she says a robot is something that does things on our behalf, you know, so essentially service. And when we look at things like Siri, Alexa, Cortana, Google Home Voice, there's a default to the female voice because we're used to assistance, right? And so, yeah, again, are we reinforcing those stereotypes by our choices, which are then reinforced by the choices that are given to us in the design process? And, you know, and it goes beyond that. I mean, it goes to, I've given talks, like this question of gender comes up a lot. I've given talks and, you know, there's this shiny white plastic that is kind of the language of high tech, right? The language of kind of like clean, new robot shell. And, um, you know, I've been challenged by that, by people as well around race, around like, why is it white? You know, which is again, something that I've thought about with a lot of my collaborators and, you know, in some cases have done purposely these gray shells so that we're, we're not touching on race in a way that, that we don't want to but you know it comes down to the same question like whoa if we have all of these characters around in, t in the sense of these like social actors that are our robots and they're all white like what is that saying but on the other hand if we purposely make one non-white like you're and it's you know what are, what are the implications of that there was an amazing article years ago by a woman that was called i don't date men who shout at alexa which is if she went home with a man and he was rude to his home assistant, that date would just end there. And that provoked a lot of debate at the time because it's also about if we're shouting at these assistants, if we're using them as our servants, then the implications of the gender are, are just that much more troubling. So in the long run, I'd like to see robotics move in the same kind of direction as society in general. We talk a lot about at WGSN about gender inclusivity, non-binary ways of thinking. I think it should move in that direction because that is the direction that society is hopefully moving in. But Carla, you talk about needing the archetype as well, needing people to feel comfortable with something that is familiar. And we do put gender and to some extent race on absolutely everything as humans. So we do still need to confront these issues at the moment. So it's, it's a really interesting area because there's so much potential for innovation. But I would always lean towards thinking of robots not as human or like human, but Kevin Kelly has this phrase, extra human. There's something different to humans. They're, they're another type of species. They're another type of entity. And that's how we should think about them, in my opinion. We haven't got much longer. So I want to like whiz through the, the rest of our topics um, a little bit. I, I like the, um, this difference between service and companion robots. Do you see them always as separate entities or do you think they'll merge? What because you talked about there being differences in the design process towards a service robot, like something that's doing your vacuum cleaner versus something like a leak, which is a companion 
to look after if you're maybe an older person and with phone calls and all this kind of thing, like a personal assistant? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's really like a like a, um, a this or a that. What I really have always felt as a designer of any kind of product is that design that understands its circumstance, that understands the context, understands the details of the use case scenario is necessarily going to be the strongest. Like you take something like a GoPro camera and it was designed specifically for that use case. And I think the same goes for software products and, and robotics and with a few exceptions, right? So I kind of think that we could certainly have, like there, there's a product that um, I consulted on in its very early stages that's called Jibo that um, has, you know, is since not no longer on the, on the market. And it was aiming to be what I might call an everything device, right? Where the um, promotional video for the product showed it helping people do recipes, helping, you know, kids read stories, helping the family take their, you know, impromptu family photos and, you know, and a, and a couple of other different use cases. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to that as well. Like some of it is just whether or not the, uh, we as a, as people are ready for that, right? like conceptually to think about this thing in a different way. I mean, I think a lot of design is kind of evolution, right? Like when we, when we had the Google glass, like the first ones and we called them glass holes, you know, it was cause like it didn't, it didn't evolve from eyeglasses. Now we, we see it, you know, we see like, you know, Amazon's got a pair, like Google's like, like it's, it's, building on the archetype of glasses that we're used to and kind of slowly integrating into our lives rather than being this sort of quick new thing. I think your Jibo was like a quick, a new thing that we hadn't defined. But then I also think that there is, there can be a real strength in the design process, like I said, in having kind of a single use thing. And I'm, I'm constantly debating this, right? Because I don't love seeing a lot of products think cluttering our homes and cluttering our landfills. Um, and, and, and certainly when we look at our tech giants, we see that they do the everything device pretty well. Like, you know, I, I know that I, some of the, our recording is happening on, you know, a mobile device, right? And that thing is a mobile device. It's a camera, like the camera on my mobile is pretty darn fantastic right now. You know, I don't carry around an SLR anymore. I don't. So, you know, I think that there are everything devices, but it's a, that's a really challenging market to enter into. The final part of your book is about is it sort of ecosystems and we wondered um sarah and i were talking about the future of home automation and we wondered what you see that i mean you kind of talked about it a bit now but do you see that as a, a series like an ecosystem of robots or sarah have you seen also like uh what what they obviously we've got the vacuum cleaners and things like this but what other things you see around the corner well, there's some really interesting robots being developed at the Toyota Research Institute who are tackling this really challenging problem of grip 
and getting robots to hold things and if they can crack grip that will open up many many more doors so they're doing things like kitchen robots that can unload the dishwasher and it is not a consumer product in any near scale time frame but it's fascinating to see the research happening there yeah i mean it really gets you thinking about how sophisticated our experiences in a way that we don't even contemplate or think about like the amount the number of decisions that go into say holding a glass or holding an egg right and understanding that it's an egg and understanding just how hard to hold it and not hold it I mean I think you know this whole business of ecosystem and will there be an ecosystem of robots I mean it gets back to almost the philosophical question of like what is a robot because certainly you know there might be something like that grip like perhaps that grip is um, integrated into a dishwasher right like you could see that that being a a really real need and a practical application but you know we already have a lot of um, our products like that, that we wouldn't necessarily call robots, right? I mean, we have a tendency to think of robots as the things that are roving in our midst or the things that can talk, like literally talk to us, like Siri and Alexa and Cortana. And I think that ecosystems, however, are important, will be important, and are going to be a mess, and are a mess right now and will continue to be a mess. Because what happens is like even, you know, the things that we've talked about today I have, you know, all kinds of stuff in my, just in my one room, living room alone, let alone other rooms. And, you know, what we have happening now is that they are necessarily dumbifying each other because they run on different protocols and they're not communicating with one another, right? And, you know, a lot of that's a really like wicked problem because it involves the competition of of different brands and different manufacturers who you know ideally would work together on a unified protocol around it i mean we already have enough challenges with the bluetooth connecting and finding the right wi-fi network and all of that and then you have these kind of competing um, services that are necessarily closed to one another because it's it's in the business interest to get people to want an ecosystem that is all of one brand, right? Um, so that's a whole really interesting and difficult challenge. So we need to move to a metaverse of ro- for robots that could talk to the, each other and then you could have whole smart cities, and which I know they're being built anyway, but it's interesting. There needs to be more sharing and collaboration and open source. We haven't got a huge amount of time, but I know that um, Sarah was curious to hear what you thought about a new bot that's been launched. Sarah, do you want to? Yeah, we couldn't record um, a podcast about robots right now and not talk about the Tesla bot. I wouldn't say it's a product that's being launched, but I'd love to hear your take on it, Carla. So, yeah, for anyone who's not familiar, was it just last week? Um, Elon Musk announced uh, on behalf of Tesla this... um, Oh, this robot. So, and the the announcement was made not with a video of some, you know, electromechanical thing, but a dancer in a white suit with a black, you know, very elegant and very good dancer. And it was introduced as a vision for the future with of a a robot that would be kind of this everything device that I was 
just describing, right? That it might go help you get your groceries. It might cook your dinner. It might bring you a beer. It might go check the front door, like all those things. So it's sort of this everything device. Certainly we can laugh at it, but we do know that Elon Musk has been um, a force of uh, remarkability that has actually delivered, right? Like people are driving around in Teslas. So the dancing part is kind of like, you know, it, it's, hey, that's not a robot, that's a person, but, I, but it's a vision. Like as a designer, I appreciate a vision, right? And I appreciate that, like, yeah, you know, I bet somebody like Elon Musk could guide a team to producing some, a humanoid robot that is that sophisticated. For me, my own design career and philosophy, I feel like the humanoid form is grossly misguided, right? Like to have actual limbs, to have the actual body. And I think it represents what I like to call human hubris, where we just feel like, well, we're the we're the best design, aren't we? You know, it's like, no, like, why does it need to have necessarily two arms? Like, why does it, you know, maybe it has one form that is stabilizes an object and the other one that grabs an object. Like, why does it need to have a, a literal head or a face? Although this one had this sort of like really interesting sort of black hood and, but you know, yeah, why does it need two limbs as opposed to, let's say, wheels? Like, like all of those questions, I think we just wind up leapfrogging to this humanoid place because it's what we know in our own myopic vision as human beings. I was going to ask from both of you the most exciting advance um, that you're tracking in robotics, like a moonshot for the future. So I'm really interested in what Disney Imagineering are doing, because I think there's huge potential in robots in entertainment and really creative uses of robots in places like theme parks. And they are building a little baby Groot robot um, that can embody any of their characters eventually and can interact with the people at the theme parks in really naturalistic ways and almost create like a live movie. And I think that's really, really exciting to watch that develop. Yeah, you know, and I mean, from from my point of view, I just, I see um, excitement just more in the, what I talk about in the chapter around context and around, which, you know, it's less exciting than something really new or different, but it's more like getting our existing robots to be better at being robots and i and I, what i talk about is this idea that what's really challenging is context like so there's a, a very famous example that um a roboticist whose name is eluding me that i mentioned in the book talks about with uh so we've had these um ai agents that were able to play the game go right and like, like that was kind of a, mi- of a milestone in robotics and um, you know, as much as that is sophisticated and exciting, we can think about um, that robot. We think about that robot, the room could be burning and that robot would not notice. So is that really intelligent, right? In, and so the room burning, so, that, so that's where it comes into context. And I think that's where really sophistication and someone like you or me, if we walked into a party, we would, uh, before talking to somebody, read a thousand, a million things about that person, right? Like, 
Um, are they making eye contact? What's their stance? What, you know, what's their emotional state? Like, I think, you know, that's a really like important, sophisticated thing that affects how you interact socially with someone. And the, really the premise of the book is that our interaction with our devices is essentially a social interaction or will happen best when it's a socially sophisticated interaction. Thank you so much. It's been really, um, fascinating and I can't recommend the book enough I can't wait to read the second half um even though I'm not a tech designer I found it really fascinating yeah good I'm glad to hear that I was hoping that I you know I, I do really advocate um technology product literacy for everyone I think there's there's a lot that we need to be aware of because we're using this stuff and it's part of our lives but uh thank you so much for having me this was a real pleasure Thank you to Carla Diana and Sarah Housley for taking time to speak to us today. Carla's book, My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human, is out now, published by Harvard Business Review. If you're a WGSN subscriber, you'll find reports covering many of the issues we touched upon on our recently launched consumer tech platform. From Design Futures, Life with Robots, to our key trend report, Friendly Technology. If you want to find out how to subscribe, head over to WGSN.com to discover how you can get access to our service. We're constantly publishing new content focusing on how we can design a brighter, better future for our industries, including food and drink, interiors, beauty, fashion and consumer tech. You can subscribe to the show on all major podcast platforms. And if you like what you've heard, why not leave us a rating and review on iTunes? I'd also like to thank our podcast producer, Roland Bodenham. We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode. So until then, stay well and healthy and we'll see you next time.